Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill in for Lucy Nalpotential. For centuries, the Connecticut River was New England's fertile valley. Indigenous tribes and later European settlers farmed the river, living with it. But when the Industrial Revolution hit, the river became something to be tamed. Factories, bridges, and train tracks were built along its banks, and the power of the river was harnessed to produce electricity and other conveniences of modern life. But in 1936, the power of the Connecticut River was unleashed. Severe storms caused surges that flooded River Valley towns from Vermont to Connecticut, and that led to infrastructure investments that still affect us today. Joining us to explain is Josh Shanley, author of the Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936. Shanley was a firefighter paramedic working in emergency management for 30 years. He's also an adjunct professor at Purdue Global University, and his blog, NewEnglandFloods.org, examines critical infrastructure and climate change resiliency through history. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Josh, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for having me. So for starters, I guess, prime us a little bit about the weather that led up to the flood of 1936. This happened in March of that year. And my understanding it was, was that it came sort of on the heels of a, a really, really cold winter, even by New England standards. Yeah, exactly. You set it up quite well. Um, It was particularly cold that winter um, leading up to March of 1936, and there was a lot of snow and the ice uh, on the Connecticut River and the tributaries was particularly thick as well. So essentially on March 12th, uh, 1936, it began to rain and it did not stop for 10 days. Um, Back-to-back storms uh, and, and just to be clear, this was a, a much larger event than just impacting the Connecticut River Valley. This um, impacted um, the entire Northeast region from Maine all the way through New York and even a good part of the uh, Mid-Atlantic region out through Ohio, Pittsburgh, down to West Virginia. So this was a large event. Uh, it just, um, the center of it parked itself over at uh, the um, head of the Connecticut River um, between uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, and the Canadian border. There was nowhere for the water to um, uh, to absorb into the soil, and um, it just flooded the uh, the river and the tributaries, and the ice started to break up. This was not an unusual event in that it was a spring freshet. Um, what was um, what was unusual and and ended up causing a lot of the damage was two back to back events. And the fact that this um, the water had nowhere to go except into the river. And so, Josh, we spoke a little bit in the intro about this shift during the Industrial Revolution where um, a lot of this area was built up um, with stuff that was really, really non-porous, <laughs> um, buildings, infrastructure, things like that. So I, I guess maybe walk us through that a, a little bit, sort of what infrastructure was on the banks of the river um, uh, leading up to this flood and, and, and sort of... What did that mean for for impacts when when the water went over the riverbanks? 
Sure. So in the um, for thousands of years, about 6,000 years, there were um, tribes of indigenous peoples, uh, dozens of them up and down the river. And they lived in and farmed up and down the river and on the tributaries. That was just, um, you know, how people survived. After uh, Europeans began to move in and uh, come up the Connecticut River with the Dutch first around Hartford, and then with the um, uh, English coming from uh, Plymouth and the Mass Colony, they also fell into that same rhythm, living along the river and just farming. I mean, that's why the Connecticut River was such an important fertile area. The river would rise, it would fertilize the soil, the river um, would recede, and um, uh, people would grow crops there. By the time canals were starting to build early, late 1795 into the um, 1820s, then industrialization started to creep in. So there was something about the steep um, tributaries along um, the Chicopee River and the Deerfield um, down into um, the Farmington that really made for uh, ideal areas for industrialization. It's the velocity of the river that turns turbines. And over time um, into the 1860s and, and certainly beyond, um, factories began to be built there. And there was this, if you followed some of the literature, there was a, a, a shift in the way the, the river was uh, categorized or characterized rather in terms of living with the river and then putting the river to work. Um, that's where people were less reluctant, less able to step back when the river rose. And that's when damage started to become uh, much more uh, common and make a bigger impact. So, Josh, you know, you're describing this scenario, um, really cold winter, you have frozen ground, uh, you have uh, riverbanks that in many ways are, are very, very developed uh, during uh, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, when the rain starts falling in earnest on on March 9th in 1936, uh, you know one of the things that really stuck out to me was um, uh, reading this book. I guess it's obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me. People didn't have weather forecasts back then, right? So, so they, you know, the rain starts and they don't really know kind of what's going to happen here. So when the rain starts falling, um, I guess take the story from there. Sure. So the rain starts falling, and again, this is a spring freshet. Um, this happens year to year, and so people were used to it. Uh, at this point in 1936, again, this is the middle of the Great Depression. Um, people are, are um, there's a lot of poverty. Uh, people are living very close to the um, the river. The river is rising. It's cold in March in, in New England. I don't have to tell anyone who's listening to this. <laughs> um, it's in the 30s. The forecast and the, and the uh, current says dark, cold, and rainy um, for about uh, that whole period of time in March. So the, the river begins to rise and people expect this. They step back, the factories often close, the basements of the factories close. There's, there's a lot of damage. The rain stops for about a day and people take a breath. They think the water is going to recede, the ice is going to break up. And if you, watch, if you look at the headlines, there's almost a sense of optimism or just getting back to normal for about a day or two. And then it starts to rain again and the rivers are already swollen and they come up so quickly um, and the damage is just devastating. Um, the, the Connecticut River came up, the tributaries uh, were raging and just tearing away um, anything along their, the shores, um, roads, rails, buildings, factories, homes, everything just got washed right into the river. 
One of the uh, primary resources uh, that really stuck out to me uh, among the many uh, that you gathered uh, while you were uh, working on uh, this book, Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936, Josh, is all the photos that you have. Um, and it's one thing to, to, to describe the scope of the damage, but when you look at some of these photos, I mean, uh, they're stunning. Uh, there, are, there are large, large parts of urban areas uh, here in Connecticut that are just underwater. Um, you have pictures of people just sort of gathering uh, on the shores of where there's floods, just ki- kind of kind of looking stunned. And, and I wonder, just as you were doing your research, you know, how did those pictures speak to you, and, and how did they really um, put put personal faces uh, on this this really catastrophic event? Sure. The common theme. I mean, this the Connecticut River, as most people probably have some sense of at this point, goes 400 miles. Um, from the Canadian border down to Long Island Sound, and then the tributaries on top of that. A lot of the devastation was done on the tributaries. So you, up in Massachusetts with the Millers River, um, uh, the Green River in, in, in through Greenfield. And as I was going through and pulling these photos, as you mentioned, there are just one image after another of people being lined up crowded on these street corners just staring into this this cold water that's you know inundated their homes on main street so they're they're left with no homes they're left with no businesses uh there's no work um probably no food just i mean the devastation was just catastrophic i should also say that this this particular event especially as the second storm started to roll in was really well covered by the press because there was a lead time um, for this. So um, the newspapers had time to get to locations where they were anticipating the worst damage would be. Up um, uh, on the Vernon Dam at the Northampton or the um, Massachusetts Vermont border, uh, they were anticipating a dam was going to break mm. on, the Connecticut, on the Connecticut River. So there were a lot of reporters there. There um, were three bridges in Montague that people were expecting to fail, and they did. And at the website, I actually have um, film um, that, of that those bridges failing, three bridges in a row, um, which is very unusual for 1936 to have moving pictures. Mm-hmm. So it was that lead time that allowed people to get um, prepared and to, to position themselves in, in, the, in these um uh, high impact areas. And I think that's why I was able to get my hands on so many fantastic and just images that tell stories that um, speak volumes. We're speaking with Josh Shanley, author of the Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936. Uh, Josh, an- another primary source in your book that uh, on the surface would <laughs> would not stand out to me as being terribly dynamic is uh, Contact, which is uh, the trade journal of the New England Power Association. So that sounds really boring to me, but um, but I'll say there, the stories that are in this that you pull from about um, the 1936 flood are, are just absolutely uh, mind-boggling. Um, you mentioned the Vernon Dam uh, up in that's up in Brattleboro, uh, Vermont. Um, this is described, I think, in contact as uh, sort of the most critical battle of the flood. Can you quickly tell the story of the Vernon Dam and why that was so critical? not only to that community that that piece of infrastructure stayed in place, but to communities uh, downstream from it as well. Yeah, the story, there are a lot of fantastic stories in uh, the Contact magazine. Um, this journal reads like a screenplay, like a Hollywood screenplay. Someone could, you know, I could see all sorts of action stars, you know, where they're fighting the rising river. Because at that point, um, 
the river has risen and there's a crew of men um, holding that dam. They see it as part of their duty to um, maintain that not only the structure of the dam, because if it fails, everything downstream is going to be lost. And that begins in Greenfield, Mass, down to Northampton, um, through Hartford and Middletown and everything in between would be would have been washed away. So they're, they are in there trying to maintain these floodgates and um, allow um, water to pass through with, without losing the structure of the dam. At the same time, this is a hydroelectric dam and they are also trying to make sure that the power continues to be um, uh, delivered. This was relatively new technology at the time and, and power lines stretched from the turbines in in, uh, in the dam out through uh, Tewksbury, Mass. And they took that those roles very seriously. You know, they were at points uh, uh, stringing high lines across the river to get across to repair um, uh, power lines that had gone down in the middle of this raging storm. Um, uh, water was breaking through the windows and, and there are quite a few photos in the book of what it looked like from the actual deck, looking out straight onto the water as the water rose. Um, just tremendous amount of um, pressure that the that these men worked under. Yeah, I mean, it really is just an incredible story. And there's other stories, you know, throughout this book too, Josh, uh, that uh, really just are um, very, very visually stunning. I mean, there are instances where the river is getting clogged up with some of the frozen ice, and that's causing these sort of temporary dams that are causing local flooding. People are getting into planes and dropping dropping bombs to break break up the ice. Is is that correct? <laughs> uh, dynamite, dynamite. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, that was uh, that was not too unusual. That um, again, these freshets um, would occur on a regular basis, and chunks of ice would break um, from the riverbed from the, the surface of the river and they would float downstream and they would create these dams, these ice dams. One story out of the a contact magazine talks about um, a turn in the river uh, just near uh, Mount Tom. Um, so somewhere between Northampton and, and Holyoke on the Connecticut river where they anticipated the river um, would rise behind these ice dams. So, I mean, the way they describe it, it sounds kind of just, so what we did was we loaded up a small airplane with some uh, a box of dynamite and flew over, uh, lit them and dropped these sticks of dynamite um, with ex um, the hope and expectation that it would clear. Uh, you know, the, the tone of it <laughs> seems somewhat matter of fact, um, and even the way they describe it, and there's multiple accounts of this uh, up and down the river. So I, 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 I took it that that was, you know, standard, uh, standard practice at the time. Um, in some cases it worked, in many cases, it, it did not because um, a small stick of dynamite against uh, a huge ice dam with chunks the size of um, cars uh, was really uh, a force to be reckoned with and, and was not going to um, fall to one stick of dynamite or multiple sticks, apparently. So the water would continue to rise until the pressure um, pushed them. And then the ice dams would would crack uh, the way they describe them in these articles, like like lightning and echo off the hills. Um, so I, I, I can only imagine what that sounded like, but uh, vivid accounts of what that sounded, how that resonated up and down the valley. There were also cases where bridges were getting dislodged because of the washout and then were later, I guess, downstream getting stuck, or maybe they were getting stuck after they broke. Um, they were causing local flooding and, and people are you know, setting these, these bridges on fire in an attempt to kind of release them. 
Um, in my head, I'm envisioning a flaming bridge missile coming down the river if I'm downstream and that being being bad. Um, but <laughs> but um, can you can you just you know very briefly talk talk about some of the stories you saw there when people were doing that? Sure, that's definitely a bad day. Um, so t- so two stories. Um, uh, in Montague, the, those three bridges at the um, confluence of the Connecticut and the Millers River uh, fail, and a, a massive timber bridge, a double decker bridge. Um, fails and floats down into the Connecticut River intact. Um, about a 750 foot long uh, timber missile floats down the Connecticut River and takes out um, uh, another massive bridge in Sunderland on the Connecticut River. Um, so there was five bridges in, in very short order that, that failed around March 20. But yeah, the story you're referencing is on the Cold River up in um, uh, Colerain, which is um, a tributary to the Deerfield and then um, goes into the um, Connecticut River in Western Mass. As the water would build behind these smaller tributaries, the velocity would just be too much. And those bridges would create dams themselves because the water would build up behind them. So people in the towns around um, Hawley and um, uh, Colerain decided that they were going to push the small uh, covered bridges off their um, uh, moorings and allow them to go downstream. Well, in one case, um, they couldn't um, free the dam from the, um, from the shore. So they, someone had the brilliant idea of lighting a dam, uh, lighting the bridge on fire. And with, I, I suppose, the expectation that the bridge would you know, collapse. And, but what happened was the bridge caught on fire and then um, uh, gave way from the shore and went floating downstream like a fiery torpedo. And there's a story in um, Contact Magazine of uh, some of the workers in the dams uh, along the Deerfield River, who again, are trying to maintain the the integrity of the the structure and keep the turbines um, working. And they look upstream and sure enough, there's a fiery torpedo coming right down on uh, on them. And they decided that that was enough for them and they, um, they bailed. That would have been around Shelburne, Shelburne Falls, that area. Hmm. Uh, we're talking with Josh Shanley, author of the Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936, which is filled with um, a ton of riveting stories of, about this, um, uh, in many ways, really, really tragic event that impacted New England. Uh, from Connecticut Public Radio, this is uh, Where We Live. I'm Patrick Scahill in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll talk more about the fallout from the 1936 flood and what that meant for infrastructure developments that are still with us today. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. A recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says stopping climate change is possible, but time is running out. Our guest today says states and the region need to be working together to plan now for the extreme weather and flooding tomorrow, because, as he puts it, the past is prologue. Joining us is Josh Shanley. He's a longtime firefighter paramedic and author of the Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Josh, one thing I did want to ask you uh, in the last segment was about uh, some of the flooding that happened here in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, People who've lived in uh, the city for a while um, might know a bit about the Hog River. Uh, This is a river that's kind of literally buried right now. We'll talk a little bit more about why it got buried following this flood. But um, what was some of the flooding that happened in Hartford uh, in 1936? Yeah, so essentially the Park River or the Hog River, as it's known, um, flowed right through the center of Hartford um, in through um, through Bushnell Park. Um, the river rose in, in the um, 1936 flood and just did, uh, there's an article in the current that describes $10,000 worth of damage. I'm not sure how that translates to today's dollars, but the photos uh, w- would give you some uh, idea of the damage. I mean, Bushnell Park is, is inundated and the state capitol is flooded. Um, uh, all of the infrastructure in that area, again, keep in mind the, the gas, the oil, um, the pollution in that, in that area was just, uh, it was just horrific. So it wasn't just a, a pond, it was raw sewage. It was just contaminated beyond all belief. And, and the many articles describe the smell and the, the oil slicks on top of this as just being uh, leading to a lot of public health issues. That area also is um, very close to the, um, the Colt factory. And when the waters recede, a decision is made that that can't happen again. We are in between wars, keep in mind, and we are looking at uh, what's going on in Europe and, and anticipating that we may be drawn into some um, strife and that we cannot afford, that Connecticut cannot afford to be without um, Colt and um, uh, Pratt and Whitney, uh, the state armory, it was also impacted during that event. So in the aftermath of that, when the, um, when the floodwaters did recede, in fact, um, a decision was made to bury the Park River. And it ends up being a huge project, it takes about 10 years. Um, very complex, complicated, expensive project but it was um, deemed critical because that could not be allowed to happen again. Also along the Connecticut River, anyone who drives up and down 91, if you look on the Connecticut River um, side, you'll see those massive flood walls, about a mile of concrete flood walls. I think there are nine pumps in in that flood um, mitigation project, and that was all built by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and, and, and then handed over to the city to manage it. Uh, one of the things that your book outlines uh, is this, um, you know, as you're describing, fairly fairly quick, uh, expensive, and very comprehensive uh, federal response uh, to the 1936 flood. 
one of the things, Josh, that stands out to me there is marshalling an infrastructure effort like that requires rallying a lot of troops. It, it requires rallying uh, town leaders, state leaders, um, in some cases, probably even just local leaders in communities to get behind these types of projects. That's really hard to do. And, and I think it's it, it's also hard, you know, maybe to make the the argument to someone upriver that, you know, you need to pay for stuff that's going to protect people downriver. Um, so can you can you maybe just talk a little bit about how that tension was approached as uh, as the region was building out infrastructure in the wake of the storm? Sure, you're you're hitting on some uh, critical points that are, in, to some degree, not still not worked out nowadays. Um, but at that time, in the aftermath of '36, um, that led to the 1936 Flood Control Act, and and it, and it designed this infrastructure that would take you know decades to build out. And it started in relatively short order. But as you're referencing, Patrick, the the flood control infrastructure that's protecting Connecticut is essentially built in along the Connecticut River in Vermont and New Hampshire at on the upper half of the river. Um, and then along the tributaries as well. It spreads for many, many miles from the actual river, you know, and involves drainage and reservoirs that that allow the um precipitation to be absorbed before it falls into the river and the tributaries. And that all, a majority of that happens um, upriver. And there are, in, even into the 50s, there are politics that get um, entwined in this. And between the agriculture and the industry and the, the, the economics and the, the social and cultural issues around these, um, around this, these challenges, it just it's amazing that anything got done, frankly. But what ends up happening is that a series of infrastructure is built by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, a sprawling infrastructure that connects beyond the Connecticut River and, and other major um, river basins. And it allows for them to, um, to, to a large degree, moderate how much rainfall um, ends up getting into these rivers. But it is, it is no easy task. Massive expense um, a lot of uh, political wrangling. And then also keep in mind that the, the people in the communities that are typically up along the river and the tributaries are already people that are struggling. I mean, these the, the people who are um, living on the hill um, are doing so and not being impacted by these events directly. So these are already people who are struggling that are having to deal with the, the, the impact early and often uh, when it comes to flooding. One uh, thing I know you said in the past, Josh, is what's passed is prologue. Um, I, I have to say, when I think about infrastructure investments, I don't really see it being approached that way. I think infrastructure is often built, then it's just kind of left there. Um, there isn't usually a lot of thought given to to life cycles. I don't think, you know, I think it's fair to say government doesn't always do life cycles really well. Um, I, I wonder if you can maybe just pick up on on that thought a little bit. When you're, when you're looking at the infrastructure that is out there today, I mean, again, a lot of this was built uh, almost 100 years ago now um, when we're talking about the 1936 flood. Um, kind of what comes next? I mean, how, how are we thinking about updating that infrastructure that's out there now to ensure that it's you know resilient enough for storms that come in the future? Well, it, it's complicated. And, and as I referenced earlier, it, it, part of that is because it does cross state lines. Um, another complexity is that there's no single solution to resolving each of these issues. There are so many points along the river, the Connecticut River and the tributaries that need to really be um, evaluated and engineered individually. So that just adds to the complexity. In the aftermath of 36, there was a huge push 
to build flood control infrastructure. And it, and it did go through 38. And, but by the time uh, the country entered uh, World War II, it was pretty much the focus had shifted and not a great deal of work went into that infrastructure in the aftermath of, of World War II. It was just built, what was built. Um, some projects were finished up, but the, the biggest push was in that, that window of between 36 and 41. After that, um, the focus shifted for obvious reasons. The problem is though, um, most of those systems still have not been maintained or, or updated to reflect you know, where we are likely headed with, with the issues around climate change. Even at that time, the systems were built for certain climate patterns, you know, certain precipitation patterns. And the, a big question is whether they will, even on a good day, would have um, survived the different changing um, precipitation patterns and in between droughts that we're anticipating looking forward. It, it, you know, there are, I've personally um, toured um, some of these uh, dikes and flood walls and dams that um, are up and down the river and with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers at points. And I've seen places where um, flood walls are cracked to the point where you can put your arm into it. Um, trees, uh, six, eight, 12 inches across are growing out of riprap. And, you know, engineers are concerned with that. It weakens the infrastructure. Um, there are definitely places along the river that are more vulnerable than others. And um, these are big, very expensive projects. Uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers um, gives um, report cards to um, infrastructures by state. There's no state in the country that is doing well, but Connecticut um, got, for 2018, the most recent report, got a, um, an overall report on their report card for uh, as a C minus. And according to the um, uh, ASCE, there are 284 high, ha high hazard dams in the state of Connecticut, meaning that if they fail, there is likely to be damage and, and potentially life lost. Um, there are 21 miles of levees, and those levees protect um, $3.4 billion of property. And there are 120 miles of inland waterways. So there's just a lot of um, infrastructure that is in place that needs to be maintained and, and in many cases upgraded. We're talking with Josh Shanley. He's author of the Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936. And yeah, there's a lot of infrastructure that is out there, Josh. There's a lot of a built infrastructure that is out there, the dams, the dikes, the levees, the things that we can put up. Um, another approach to this, you know, that works in some cases, not all, is, is nature-based solutions. Um, that's sort of, you know, leveraging things in the environment to maybe mitigate some, some local flooding. Um, I wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit about that. Uh, and I understand you've looked a little bit at how this has been approached uh, in, in Hawley, Massachusetts. Is that right? Yeah. So I've been involved in emergency management for a long time. And, and you know, when I first got started, the approach to infrastructure and to um, flood mitigation was on, you know, the, the term we use was hardening. And that involved, you know, flood walls and, and riprap along um, uh, riverbanks. It turns out if we talk with um, environmental scientists and, and people who pay attention to um, hydrology and um, these kinds of things that increasing the velocity of the water is what does the real damage. Volume is certainly one problem, but the velocity of the water is what really causes um, um, major problems. So if we build um, a, a, a concrete um, wall that allows 
that keeps the water from getting into the community, but increases the velocity as it trans um, as it as it transfers downstream. We're only shifting the problem um, from our community to the one that's downstream, and that's essentially what happened up in Holly Mass in um, in, in the aftermath of Irene in 2011. Tremendous damage was done on a small tributary um, to the uh, Deerfield River, the Chickley River, as you mentioned. And um, it, it did damage to the river, but also um, ripped away uh, Route 8, um, uh, the road, the state road that um, wound its way um, to Route 2. Um, it created all sorts of dam um, damage and, and real genuine problems for the people in that very small community up in Massachusetts. Um, this was um, played out in the newspapers over um, a good six to 12 months, if not longer. Um, long story short, uh, those changes had to be undone. And the solutions that were in, um, put into place there were much more based on nature. So instead of pouring um, concrete and riprap in that case, um, the, the stream, the creek, the river was allowed to meander. And, it, and the banks were softened by replacing vegetation. And it's that it's that approach, these nature-based uh, uh, solutions that not only are more effective, but they look nicer. They provide recreation. They provide um, uh, a better environmental sense and, and, and really keep the, the culture and, and social fabric of these communities, you know, which is why people live there and to begin with. So it really is a win-win. Um, I suppose if there is a downside, these, these approaches um, may um, cost more um, upfront, but ultimately in the long run, they are, they are a win. Um, we just need to take the time, ideally before they are damaged, to um, implement these systems. You know, this, these are the kinds of systems that we can put into place before they're destroyed, before they're damaged. And, and that's a much more cost-effective, but somehow counterintuitive solution, you know, to, to go in and to do this, this mitigation work around these, um, these vulnerable areas. It, it, it's sometimes a hard sell uh, in, uh, when the economy is struggling as we are now. I, I wonder, you know, if you can maybe speak uh, for the last thing here as, as someone who's been in disaster mitigation for, for most of your life. Um, when you're looking at those photos, when you're looking at all, all, this, all these documents about the 1936 flood, I mean, you, you must be thinking about, well, what's next for us here? And, 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 and what are your concerns there when you, when you think about, you know, what's next for the next storm for us? Yeah, um, I'm concerned, frankly. Um, most of my career has been not dealing with um, disaster mitigation, but response. Um, you know, I was, I grew up in New York and I had the opportunity to be at the Trade Center um, for five days in the aftermath of the, um, in 2001. But I also was there in, in 93 when the Trade Center was bombed the first time. That's my, that's my, been my role as a responder. Now, I suppose I'm getting older and retired and looking at, um, different ways to manage this besides response. I want to get ahead of these issues. And I think that um, mitigation adaptation are the way that we need to get um, to deal with these issues. Um, I've got on my on my wall um, a phrase that I think I came up with. The, the easiest disaster to manage is the one we don't have to respond to. If we can build systems that will not prevent, we can't prevent bad weather from happening. That's a different conversation, but 
if we can mitigate, if we can build resiliency into these systems, that's going to allow these systems to absorb these impacts and allow us to recover much more efficiently and quickly and and less expensively, frankly. I mean, it's a win-win. Uh, less lives will be impacted for longer periods of time. We can get back to our, our normal uh, daily business and the economy can um, can continue to thrive along with um, every other social and cultural um, reason that we have our communities, you know, but building these systems that are more resilient, that recognize the, the, the current threat looking forward instead of the previous threats looking backwards is the way we have to approach these issues. Josh Stanley is author of Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936. Josh, thanks so much for uh, coming on today and uh, sharing your thoughts and all the great work that you did in your book. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Patrick Scahill in for Lucy Nalpotential. Coming up, we check in with the city of Groton about flood planning underway in the face of projected sea level rise. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill. While the Connecticut River Valley is vulnerable to extreme flooding, there are some efforts underway to address coastal flooding in Connecticut. In Groton, a 2011 study warned warned that climate change could lead to coastal flooding, loss of wetlands, and sewer overflows. And municipal leaders are planning for 20 inches of sea level rise by 2050. In densely populated areas of Groton City, located along the inlet of the Thames River, a community resilience plan is being developed to combat climate change, and it involves several nature-based ideas. Joining us is Sierra Patrick. She's Economic Development Specialist for the City of Groton. Sierra, thanks so much for coming on Where We Live. Thank you for having me today. So as we said, Groton is developing this community resilience plan. Uh, I guess for starters, just why was this plan needed? Back in 2019, the community um, updated the plan of conservation and development. And at that time, the Planning and Zoning Commission is the or is the group that puts together that plan. They identified coastal um, flooding and vulnerabilities as things that the city needed to further assess and develop an understanding of so that we can better prepare ourselves for the future. And so um, from that document, um, staff has been um, working to just fulfill that goal. Um, we've applied for a um, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation grant um, to conduct the plan. Um, We've worked with the Nature Conservancy to just do some community engagement. Um, We've also collaborated with the Connecticut DEEP um, to further that community engagement to really start to develop an understanding of our vulnerabilities here and getting the community involved in discussion. And so this uh, plan was previewed, uh, I believe, last month um, in, in March. Um, I guess maybe when you're talking about those vulnerabilities, what are some of the the solutions that are being discussed to address those vulnerabilities right now? And I understand, too, there's been some particular um, emphasis on nature-based solutions to address some of these climate change uh, threats. Yes. Yeah, so um, back in March, the we're working with SLR Consultings um, to develop the Community Resiliency Plan and Um, They conducted a full and very thorough risk assessment of the city of Groton. Um, It broke up the community into like six different sections and identified um, vulnerabilities such as um, urban heat islands, um, areas of coastal flooding, and just high winds and different 
elements of just the geography and of the of the land and things that we could start to look at. And so some examples of um, areas are for like instance, um, we have Washington Park here. It is an open space. Um, it has a lot of amenities, whether it's basketball courts, tennis courts, um, baseball fields, uh, workout station. Um, it has a lot of amenities in the facility, but it um, doesn't have very many trees to offer shading. Um, we do have a lot of concerts there in the summertime. So to identify one, an urban heat island, and then also looking at the use of the space and the community desire to utilize that space is kind of just taking that challenge, but also bringing in like that um, more plants and more design to kind of make that space a little bit more comfortable and enjoyable for all. Um, we also looked into the coastal flooding um, from the Thames Riverside. So looking at Shore Avenue, um, that is next to the Eastern Point Historic District, as well as the Eastern Point Beach. So looking at different ways that we can maybe mitigate the um, storm surge that is um, experienced in the in that neighborhood currently and looking at na natural based solutions. So there, there's a retaining wall that our public works department is um, looking to do some repairs for and right next to it there's a small little open space area and the SLR consultants along with Dewberry looked at installing a natural based burn that way if the storm surge were to come over the wall that that landscaping is there to absorb that water and prevent it from getting into the residential neighborhoods um, that are uh, either abutting it or right across the street from from that location. Again, this plan is uh, specific to Groton City. This is a densely populated area. Uh, it's flanked uh, on the south, as you were saying, by Long Island Sound. Uh, the Thames River Inlet is is over on the west. There are a lot of people um, that are living here. And, and I wonder if you can maybe speak a bit more about, you know, how you are engaging the community in these conversations now to um, prepare them for, you know, uh, some of the possible threats that sea level rise might bring to 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 where they live. So um, a lot of our communication has definitely or community engagement has been centered around um, this plan and really understanding what are some of the vulnerabilities and things that people are experiencing now um, as we have these different weather events and, and event um, things that happen. So the community engagement piece is is very important and we're still developing it because there's so much more that we need to discuss with the community and come together and collaborate on because resiliency, like the municipality plays a role. It is going to take the entire community and all the local organizations, property owners to really come together for certain solutions and, and collaborate and, fit and find ways to work together to achieve our goals um, and really understanding what those goals are as well. So um, we're, we're in the beginning stages of the community engagement process. Um, on May 23rd, we will present SLR consulting and staff will present the project findings and some of the um, proposed concept plans to city council. And then from there, I am working with a couple local organizations to develop additional community engagement so that we can really start to have these meaningful conversations in a very productive way. Sierra Patrick is uh, Economic Development Specialist for the City of Grand Sierra. Thanks so much for uh, coming on today and uh, sharing some of your insights for the work that you're doing. 
Oh, thank you for having me. I'm Patrick Scahill in for Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live Anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thanks so much for listening.